The first reading can be found in the book of Genesis in chapter 5, which is found on page 5. That's Genesis chapter 5, starting at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan for 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared for 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for, 900, for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Our reading continues on in Genesis 6 on page 5. And we're reading Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, there are many reasons that men have a lower life expectancy than women, uh, some of them involving power tools, fire, and perhaps a general overconfidence in their own abilities. Uh, But one is a general reluctance to go to the GP. A survey done a few years ago suggested that nine in 10 men were unlikely to see a doctor unless they thought that the problem that they were facing was serious. Uh, But bodies are weird Unless your arm is falling off, it can be quite hard to tell what's normal or abnormal, what's minor, or what could be symptomatic of a more serious problem. On a larger scale, the world is pretty weird too. There are times when it's pretty obviously broken. Wars, famines, or recently global pandemics. But even in times of relative stability, there are nagging symptoms To varying degrees, all of our lives are touched by sickness, by death, and by wickedness. Whether we see it online, on the walk to work, or in our own homes, there is so much in this world that makes us say, it should not be this way. That's not quite right. But are these things that we see, uh, like a little bit of flu, aches and pains that will pass in time as humanity gets more educated, more civilized, or more advanced? Or are these symptoms of something more serious? Today, we're going to be like one in 10 men uh, and be sensible. Uh, This passage is going to take us on a trip to the doctors, not just me, not just you, but the entire human race. Our world is going to the doctors to ask that scary question. How bad is it, doctor? And if it is serious, is there any hope? Now, Genesis 5 and 6 are like two parallel panels, uh, two different investigations that the doctor is carrying out to see what is going on. And we're going to start with Genesis chapter 5. A long list of names might sound like an odd place to start a trip to the GP, uh, but every good doctor starts a consultation by taking a medical history. Uh, What problems have you had? How about your parents or your siblings? Uh, Think of this genealogy like a special medical history going right back to the very start of creation. And it really does start at the very beginning. Uh, Look down with me at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. We're hearing echoes of Genesis 1, uh, humanity created in the likeness of a good God and placed in a good world and blessed to fill, to multiply and fill this world. And at first, things looked very promising for Adam. Look down at verse 3. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Things are looking promising. He has kids that look like him in the image of God, and he's living an absolutely astonishing amount of time. It doesn't say how many sons or daughters he had in that time, but 800 years of fruitfulness must have resulted in some pretty packed Christmas lunches. But in verse 5, we come to the first blip in this otherwise happy medical history. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Adam's long life ends But then, as we follow through the generations, we see that it's more than just a blip. Each of the long lives of Eve's offspring of Adam ends in death. And he died. 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 The doctor has very troubling news. The first part of his diagnosis of humanity Humanity has death in the DNA, death in the DNA. We're seeing here the consequences of humanity's sin. We were made for full and ongoing life in the presence of God, but the very first people chose instead to turn away from their loving God's kind rule and to go their own way. You can read more about it in Genesis 3. Our good God responded in the only way he could to this sort of rebellion with right judgment. He cursed the good gifts of work and marriage that he gave us. But worst of all, we were thrown from the presence of our life-giving God, and so we die. They chose sin, and as we follow the medical history of humanity, we can see the tragic consequences. Adam was passing on his image, but as he passes on this image, He passes on a ticking time bomb. He died. And like father, like son, his children died. Their children died. We die. And so all the world and all of humanity and all of history is filled with death. Genesis 5 wants to help us feel the scale of the consequences of human sin. It affects every person of every generation in every place. For those of us who've lost loved ones don't have the privilege, death is far easier to ignore in our modern world than in most of human history. We can sanitize it. We can pretend that it's natural, pretend that it just happens to other people. But for all of our technology and all of our progress, Humanity has not and will not solve the tragedy of death. Humanity has death in the DNA. 
But the doctor's exam isn't done quite yet. We're moving on to Genesis 6, the second part of this doctor's investigation. And he's noticed some troubling behavior if you look down at chapter 6, verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. It seems that in these early days, there were marriages between human women and sons of God, which is probably a Hebrew idiom meaning heavenly creatures. The language is meant to remind us of the fall of Genesis 3. These angels saw something that was attractive or good and took it, just like Eve and the fruit in Genesis 3. As strange as it sounds to us, and it, it does sound strange, this behavior is rebellion against God. And it's rebellion that humanity are complicit in. Uh, These aren't one-off sexual encounters. They're marriages that would have needed the family's blessing. Uh, This is open and societal rebellion against God's wishes. Uh, But this troubling behavior is just the tip of the iceberg. Where does this sort of rebellious behavior come from? Well, the doctor gets out his stethoscope and he starts to listen to humanity's heartbeat. And what does he hear? Evil. Humanity doesn't just have death in the DNA. They have evil in the heart. That's the second part of the doctor's diagnosis today. Humanity has evil in the heart. Look down with me at verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a chilling diagnosis, expressed in a way that leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. Now, our first reaction might be, that sounds a bit harsh. Sure, there might be some people like that, but I've never killed anybody. I might not be perfect, but I do good things sometimes when I remember. But this verse doesn't mean that humanity is as bad as it could be. It's not saying that your sweet old granny is secretly a bank robber. In his kindness, God restrains us from being that bad. Instead, it is saying that at the core, humanity are rebels. Our hearts are set against God the source of all goodness. And even our actions that look good are corrupted by that fact. I can't truly love my neighbor if I hate the God who is love. My dad started making sourdough in lockdown. And at some point in this procedure of culturing the starter again and again and again, uh, his yeast starter went bad. Uh, Perhaps it was polluted by some bacteria. I don't quite know how. But from that point on, all the bread that he made tasted absolutely foul. He could have used the best Waitrose flour, the most precise cooking tools imaginable, the oven at the perfect temperature. But the yeast that he was using was bad, so it made bad bread. And just like that, evil hearts set against God produce actions corrupted by wickedness. If the hearts are bad, the actions are bad. Every intention 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, says Genesis. Humanity has evil in the heart. And just like death, that evil spreads. Imagine my dad had passed on his bad sourdough starter to me. All the bread that I made would have been rancid too. Remember all of those sons and daughters in chapter 5. This is what their hearts were like. Corrupted evil hearts producing children with corrupted evil hearts. So as humanity multiplies, as they're fruitful and fill the earth, the world is filled not with the glory of God, but with evil, with wickedness. It's very easy to look around our world and to blur out all of the rough edges. We can pretend that wickedness and evil are because of poverty or because of bad education or are limited to certain parts of society, whether you think that's the lowest or the highest. And it's the city dream, isn't it? To earn enough to move out of grimy London to a commuter village where nothing goes wrong and everyone's a good sort. But for one thing, that is a distinctly middle-class privilege. Most people don't have the luxury of going on right move and sorting by low crime. In, in much of the world, conflict and violence are a daily reality. For another, it's nonsense to say that nicer neighbourhoods are filled with good people. In those sorts of neighbourhoods, crime just goes white-collar. How much, I wonder, have the deceitful schemes of those living in leafy Surrey cost the British taxpayer? And just being honest with ourselves for a moment, which of us can look within without being confronted by desires which are not good? The writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn sums it up like this. Here is his reflection after 10 years in Soviet gulags, witnessing very real evil. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Genesis 6 shows us that humanity has evil in the heart. And Genesis shows us this doctor's appointment because God wants us to be realistic about why the world is the way it is filled with death and wickedness. The problem isn't a few bad apples, posh or poor. Death and wickedness is deep-rooted in every one of us. And we spread it to our children and wherever we move in the world. When we see the problems of this world, we need to think back to this doctor's appointment. Our world is sick because we are sick. It tells us. Humanity have death in the DNA and evil in the heart. But even more chilling than the doctor's diagnosis is God's reflection in verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What is the Lord's response to seeing death and wickedness, the same death and wickedness that we see in the world? grief. He hates it like a doctor hates the cancer that he diagnoses. 
And God responds in exactly the way we should all want a good and just God to react to evil and death with judgment. Look down at chapter six, verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, God is not content to look at the wickedness consuming the world. In right judgment, he commits to blotting it out. This is bitter medicine, but the radical problems of this world require radical treatment. And there's no doubt that this sort of judgment would solve the violence, the sin, and the brokenness of the world. The problem is that the source of that sin and violence is the human heart. We're a part of the disease that the doctor is treating. We are right in the firing line. If we really do have evil in the heart, we deserve judgment. But wonderfully, the consultation doesn't end there. The doctor doesn't kick us back out onto the street with that sad news. The diagnosis is crushing, the medicine bitter, but the doctor, he has good news. God looks at the world gripped by death and wickedness, and he offers hope. God offers hope. Now, there's a glimmer of hope that most people point out when they're reading this passage, that of Enoch. Flip back to chapter 5 and look down at verse 24, if you would. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. After generations of death, Enoch doesn't die. It's not the focus of this chapter. You could always miss it amongst all the names and numbers. And afterwards, we go back to death, death, death. But it does show that our God is greater than death. Death is real. Death is terrible. But death doesn't have to be the end for those who walk with God. It's a minor note in this chapter, but the Bible's united witness is that God promises life to his people and not death. Death is not the end for those who trust Jesus. And if you're not familiar with that promise, if that's new to you, why not ask one of us here how we could be crazy enough to believe something like that? Enoch offers hope of personal salvation from death to all who trust God. But if we focus on him, there's a chance that we miss the even greater hope that is in view in this chapter. Hope for the world. God offers hope, not just of personal salvation, but of a world without death and wickedness. And that hope is embodied in one man, Noah. Chapter five drives towards Noah. He's the only one in this passage whose name is explained. uh, And it sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And we don't have to guess what his dad Lamech meant when he called him rest. Uh, Look down at verse 29. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech has grown up in a world of curse, the same sort of world that we've grown up in. And you can hear the yearning in his voice. We can imagine the sorts of things that he was thinking of as he held the baby Noah in his hands. You can imagine him thinking back over his long life in a world scarred by sin. Perhaps he thinks of the years of hard labor 
to eke a living out of the ground. The calluses, the blood, sweat, tears, and frustration. Perhaps he thinks of the groans of the people around him suffering in a world filled with violence, the cries of pain as his wife gives birth. Perhaps he thinks of those he's lost to the curse of death that stalks humanity. And as he thinks of his life in our cursed and sinful world, he looks at his son, Noah, and says, this one shall bring us relief. How did he know? Uh, We're not told. But somehow, Lamech saw that in the gift of this baby boy, God was offering hope of an end to the curse that this world experiences because of human sin. And Genesis seems to agree. After 10 generations of people dying and dying or being taken, Noah's death isn't recorded. It's as if the chapter ends on a huge dot, dot, dot. Read on to find out how this actually happens. And again in verse 6 after the, of chapter 6, after the news of this catastrophic judgment that God will use to cleanse the world of wickedness, we get down to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, this passage confirms what Lamech was saying. Somehow, God will save Noah from this coming judgment. Somehow, Noah carries hope of a world without death and wickedness. The hopes of all humanity are pinned on Noah. Over the coming weeks, as we follow Noah's story, we're going to see God back up those promises of hope for the world. Uh, But for now, it won't have escaped your notice that Noah is long gone. And the world is still broken. But that was true for the very first readers of this account too. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Noah's story is a foretaste of God's plan to cure this cursed world, which will only ultimately be achieved by the work of Jesus, like we've been singing about, the one who offers real and lasting rest. But for now, as we hear about this hope, it is worth dwelling on it. It's worth dwelling on God's offer of hope. This passage makes it clear that God is aware of the problems facing this world. He sees the pain caused by death and wickedness. And he's doing something about it. He's doing something far greater than we could even hope for or imagine. We're so used to curse, to wickedness and death, that it's hard to truly imagine a world without them. Can you imagine opening up a newspaper and seeing no evidence of war or crisis? Can you imagine seeing no stories of the vulnerable subjected to cruelty? No tragic stories of people taken before their time? London isn't a terrible place to live, but I'm sure all of us have had some hairier moments too. For some of us, perhaps that fear is a daily reality. But God is offering hope of a world where wickedness is truly gone. And death, death is horrible and terrible and wrong. And some of us I know are feeling the pain of loss. Some of us perhaps are living in fear of death for ourselves uh, or for those we love. And even if we're not thinking of that, even the thought that death stalks the world is horrible. But God here is offering hope of a world without curse which means a world without death. It's almost too good to be true. 
God is offering real and incredible hope. Now, we all go into doctor's appointments with expectations. Uh, How do the results of this one compare to what you thought about the world? Perhaps the problem is worse than you thought. And Genesis wants us to be realistic about the fact that death and wickedness are deep-rooted in us. Perhaps you need to take that seriously. We're the reason that the world is broken. But against that bleak backdrop, I hope this passage has left us with far more hope. God isn't just about making individual lives better, about helping us to cope with the broken world, or even just about giving life after death, although those things are wonderfully true. If we trust the God of the Bible, we have permission to hope for far more, for a world without curse, without sin, and without death, because that is the scale of God's plans. Uh, In our daily lives, we can look at death and at wickedness, at frustration and painful toil, and think it will not always be this way. Next week, we're going to think about, can God back up that promise? Uh, But for now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not look at death and wickedness unmoved, but set out to do something about it. Please help us to cling to your offer of hope and to look forward to that day when Jesus will bring an end to death and wickedness. Amen.